You're listening to audio from Northway Church. For more information about Northway and additional resources, please visit northwaychurch.com. Well, good morning, Northway family. How are we doing? Ah, come on now. Hey, I heard we got a grip of SMU students in here. Is that true? Pony up. Come on, look at y'all back there. Come on, way to represent. Way to represent SMU. Any UNT fans in here? All right, good. That's my life story, my life story. Romans chapter four, everybody. If you've got a Bible with you, I'd love for you to turn there with me. Take another dive here into our study in the book of Romans. And if you are just joining us, oh my goodness, y'all, we are walking through one of the most pinnacle texts and books of your entire Bible that really synthesizes what the scriptures are all about. This book of Romans, this letter that the apostle Paul wrote to the church in Rome in the first century and really is, uh, in many ways, serves as just this beautiful piece of jewelry, Romans is, this diamond that is held up before us, that is all about, the diamond is all about the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, how a holy God saves a sinful people. And this, this diamond of this gospel, every chapter, almost every page, every, every section of Romans is just another facet of this diamond that is turning for us so we can see a different side, a different angle that makes up this one truth of who God is and how he saves. And what we've seen so far, just in this journey, right out of the gate, Romans chapter one, Paul tells us that there is one thing lacking in every human being that we need in order to stand in the presence of God, and that is the righteousness of God. And the truth is, is that none of us have it. All of us have rebelled against God, have fallen short of his glory, and now for st- therefore stand under the weight of condemnation, under his justice for falling short of that. And the evidence that Paul brought forth, one to the Gentile was just creation around us. The fact that there is a creation that even if you've never owned a Bible, you should be able to look at creation and and have a glimpse of a creator. And you should want to worship and exalt that creator. But the evidence of our ungodliness is that even in the face of the limited information we do have about this God, we have chosen to reject it, to suppress it, and to exchange the truth of it with a lie and now worship the creation rather than the creator. And that evidence is our guilt, evidence is our unrighteousness that we have. And so we are guilty. And then to the Jew that might be on looking going, amen, go get them. Paul turns in chapters two and three and says, you who have actually known who this God is, you didn't have to do the guesswork with creation. You actually know because you've read his word, you, you've, you've beheld his law. Like, you know who he is and what he expects and how to relate to him. And even with all of that in front of you, you still would not believe you have exchanged his righteousness for your own. To try to pursue your own self-righteousness through your own works as if that will merit you before a holy God. And so you too are guilty of that condemnation as well. And again, we we ended there at chapter 3, verse 20 going, this is an awful way to start this book. But then in 321, the good news comes in. When God says, hey, the righteousness that you need, you could never earn or deserve, but I love you so much that I am giving you this righteousness as a gift. And you're going to receive it not through your own works. You're going to receive it by trusting in me, by faith alone, in the object of my promise, the object of your righteousness, which is found in Jesus Christ. 
Jesus, whom absorbed the full justice of God on the cross that we deserve for our sin, and yet by trusting in him has now merited to our account his righteousness, has cleansed us, has forgiven us, has atoned for our sin so that we can be made one and reconciled with God. He has done this as a gift that is received by faith alone. Just believe, trust in, and allow him to change your life. And then again to the the Jew that may be watching that in chapter three goes, man, that's just too good to be true. And that seems opposite of what we've ever known. And so Paul goes, well, let me illustrate. So chapter four has been a series of illustrations trying to show specifically the Jew that it is, it is and has always been about faith alone in the promise of Jesus Christ. How do we know that? Let's go all the way back to our forefather, Abraham, when this whole thing started. How was he saved? And what we saw in chapter 4, verses 1 through 8, is that Abraham was saved by faith alone apart from works. There is nothing he did when he just believed in the promise of God and it was credited to him as righteous. You go, okay, well, what about circumcision? Because doesn't every Jew have to be circumcised in order to be saved? And Paul goes, I'm glad you asked. And so in verses 9 through 12, he illustrates how, again, when was Abraham saved? He was saved in Genesis 15. When was he circumcised? Genesis 17. 13 years after he was saved. And so the truth is, is that Abraham was saved by faith apart from works, apart from ceremonial traditions. It has always been about faith. And what we're going to see is one last argument here in verses 13 through 16, that salvation comes by faith apart from the law. And we're going to see this through Abraham. Now, the law, what is the law in the Bible? Not talking about our law here, not talking about constitutional law in the United States or judicial law. We're talking about biblical law. What comes to mind when you hear the law in the Bible? For most people that have a remote understanding of the, of the Old Testament, our minds will immediately go to the Ten Commandments. The law is the Ten Commandments. This is what God gave to Moses, who brought it down on these stone tablets and gave it to the people to follow. But the truth is, biblically speaking, the law is much bigger than just the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments were like the inauguration, kind of the constitution uh, given, but there were the terms of the constitution, but there were so much more encompassed to that. In fact, the word law translated in Hebrew means Torah. The Torah. What is the Torah? The Torah is the summation of all the law that is contained in the first five books of your Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is the Torah. The law, the Torah is contained within there. And it's not just 10 commands. It's actually 613 commands in those first five books of your Bible. 613. And the question is, why are they there? Now, unfortunately, over time, and specifically here in the West, we have hijacked the biblical understanding of why the law was given in the first place. And many casual readers of the Bible in our culture have mistakenly taken all those laws in the Old Testament and have simply reduced them to one of two things. On one hand, we'll just see them as just mere good advice. The Bible just has some good advice, and if you just follow it, it'll lead to a good life. Like Just some good advice. But on the other hand, we have reduced that law down to a, a, a bunch of strict commands that God, an angry God, has put upon his people, has imposed upon us, that we must fulfill these duties, and by doing so, have all of our fun taken away, 
so that we can appease this angry God. And somehow that has been woven into the conscience, especially of Southern Bible Belt believing people here in the United States over the course of our history. And the worst part about it is for many that believe that, man, I must obey the law in order to receive the righteousness of God, the the sad reality is, is that many of those folks who believe that, two things happen. One, they can't even tell you where to find the law in the Bible. Like if I were to ask you, where are the Ten Commandments found in your Old Testament? Could you name the two places that they're most explicitly described? And most of us can't, let alone even be able to list more than three of the Ten Commandments by memory. And yet, so we don't know where to find them. We don't even know how to quote them, but we'll believe subconsciously, I got to do them in order to win the righteousness of God. And that's, that is the crazy myth that has been propelled here in our culture is that by following a bunch of rules that we don't even know what they are, that's ultimately what will appease God and make my standing right with him by the time this life is done. But is that true? Is the basis for our salvation, is the basis for our righteousness, is the basis for our standing before God, Is it completely dependent upon us obeying the Ten Commandments? I want to show you here in Romans chapter 4, in just a few verses, another angle of salvation, another facet of this diamond that Paul is going to give us through the lens of Abraham in your Old Testament to show us why our righteousness is not, cannot, and will never be derived from simply trying to do good and fulfill this law of God. That it wasn't this way in the beginning. It never was a prerequisite on the law in the beginning, and nor is it today. And in doing so, I want to show you what the law was ultimately for. And I want to show you why Jesus is the best news ever for any wannabe rule followers like myself, any self-acclaimed legalists in the room, like you struggle with that, that's me. I want to show you why Jesus is such good news that liberates you from that when you recognize daily how woefully you fall short of the law, but why that was never your hope to begin with. So let's dive in. Romans chapter four, we're going to pick up in verse 13. The apostle Paul begins this way. He says, for the promise that was made to Abraham... The promise that was made to him and his offspring, that he would be the heir of the world. You need to know that that promise did not come through the law, but it came through righteousness that came by faith. Now, that's a huge statement right out of the gate. Whatever this salvation is that Abraham received, it did not come through the law, and it's not coming for you either through the law. It is, it is and has always come by the righteousness that is given to us, that is received by faith. That's how he begins this. Now, he says the promise that Abraham became heir of the world. That's an interesting phrase. That's a, that's a phrase that's only used one time in your Bible, one time by Paul. It's used right here. What does it mean to be heir of the world? And this is a summary statement that Paul uses. And even though he doesn't quote anywhere else, it's the same idea that Jesus had in mind in the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, when Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there shall be the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor, or I said, blessed are the meek, uh, for they shall inherit the earth. 
There's an inheritance of this, the earth. And what is being referred to there by Jesus is the ultimate consummation of all the promises that were originally made to Abraham. In Genesis 12, Genesis 15, Genesis 17, Genesis 22, all these promises that God made, you can summarize it. This idea that God promised that his, Abraham's descendants would possess the gates of their enemies, that they would inherit the earth beginning with the land of Canaan, that they would, one day there would be a, a promised Messiah through the seed of Abraham who would come, who would bring about righteousness to God's people, a righteousness that they could not purchase for themselves, but he would come and he would bring it and that he would bring a shalom, a peace upon the earth and all the inhabitants of the earth would be blessed. They put their trust in this one Messiah, this seed that was promised. All of those promises, those promises were the hope of the Jew. They put their trust in it. That's why Jesus quotes this in the Sermon on the Mount because he knew that's what they were hoping for. It's what they hung their hat on. And they simply were waiting on Messiah to come to fulfill it. That's why even today at the Passover, there are symbolisms in the Jewish Passover meal that indicate they were putting their hope in the promises to Abraham. The youngest Jewish boy at Passover will still go to the door of his family's home and they will open the door and he'll look outside to see if Elijah is coming announcing that the Messiah is almost here. Like that's still practiced today. At the end of the Passover meal, the Seder meal, everybody who participates in that meal will all turn and face one another and they will, they will exclaim to one another in hope next year in Jerusalem. Their hope is that we won't be having this Seder meal in Dallas, Texas. Next year, we'll be in Jerusalem gathering with the Messiah. That is their hope. Where did they get that? From the promises that were initially made with Abraham. Now, they're off. They've missed it that that actually, that promise has been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. They're still waiting on a Messiah who has actually already come. But their hope is still rooted in that original promise. Now, Paul says here in Romans 4, that promise to Abraham, that he would be the heir of all that has been promised to him, specifically the righteousness of God, the salvation that will come through Messiah, that promise, Paul says, did not come through the law. It came by faith, meaning that obedience to the Ten Commandments was never even factored in to the promise that God gave Abraham. He was saved long before that based on faith, faith alone, period. Now, you see what Paul's getting at. Here's the question we asked the last two weeks that we have to go back and go, was his salvation before or after such thing? When was Abraham saved? Abraham was saved in Genesis 15, around 2000 B.C., when he believed in the promise of the Messiah and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when did the law come into play? Was it before or after Abraham was saved? It was after, and it wasn't just after, it was way after. We're talking Exodus chapter 20, 500 years after Abraham. That's when the law came into play. And so, Abraham, as the father of the faith, was not saved by law. Moses wasn't even a twinkle in his mother's eye at that point. He was not saved by law. He was saved by grace through faith in the promise of God to provide a righteousness for him. Now, in verse 14, Paul's going to tell us, 
If hypothetically, obedience to the law is what would give the Jew the keys to the kingdom, if you're going to try to earn your salvation by adherence to Mosaic law, then there are two things that are assured for you, and they're an assurance that you don't want. You see the first one in verse 14? He says, he says in verse 14, for if it is the adherence to the law that are the people that are going to be heirs, like those who adhere to the law, those are the ones that are going to be the heirs of salvation, then here's the first thing that can be assured. Faith is going to be nullified. So if you can earn your salvation through the law, then you don't need faith. That's going to get canceled out. Meaning if you're going to try and be saved by works through Mosaic law, then your faith is no longer needed. Now let me ask you a question. Can you have faith and law at the same time to be your salvation? Do faith and law work together? No, they don't. You can be you can have faith or you can have law, hypothetically. You can be given salvation or you can work for it, hypothetically, but you can't have both at the same time. That is an oxymoron. That is like the phrase Great Depression. Two words that don't go together. That is an oxymoron in this instance here. Saved. To be saved, that is a passive act that is accomplished by somebody else on your behalf. To invoke works of the law, that is something you do to try. So you can't be saved by somebody else and you. This isn't a divine assist. This isn't a partnership right here. If that's the case, faith is nullified. To try to mix grace and law, it's like adding a positive and a negative. One is going to cancel out the other. They can't both coexist. That's why, incidentally, if somebody says to you that they are saved by grace, but then they have to do A plus B plus C in order to ensure that, then we're not talking about true faith. That is not faith alone. That is faith plus, and that is a contaminated mixture. Now, I want to show you a little bit more deeply how Paul felt about this that he doesn't unpack fully right here, but he does in the book of Galatians. Hold your place in Romans chapter 4, flip to your right, and go to Galatians 3. I told you last week, there is an entire book in your Bible that is anchored around everything that Romans chapter 4 is about. And in this, in this, in Galatians, Paul is writing because you have a bunch of brand new Christians up in uh, central Turkey who have all come to faith in Jesus Christ. And they're trusting in him and him alone, but some old school Judaizers, some old school Jewish brothers and sisters who believe in Jesus, but they believe it's Jesus plus works are coming to these people going, hey, it's not just faith alone. It's faith plus circumcision, plus Mosaic law, plus, plus, plus. It's faith plus. And Paul writes to them in chapter one, he goes, you need to know, Galatians, if you're going to believe that, you are switching teams. You have jumped to another gospel that is no gospel at all. It is a false gospel, and if you're going to go down that road, that won't lead to your salvation. That's going to lead to your condemnation because you're not trusting in God's provision for salvation. You're trusting in your own. And in chapter 3, though, listen to his language, starting in verse 1. Paul says, Oh, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? 
It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. You watched the Messiah die for your sins in person. And he says, let me ask you a question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Meaning, when you put your trust in Jesus Christ, what happened immediately after you believed upon him, the Holy Spirit was given to you to indwell with you as a seal and a down payment to help conform you to the image of Christ until his return. When you receive the Holy Spirit, did you receive the Holy Spirit because you somehow merited the Spirit? You did some works of the law that you fulfilled the law perfectly and that's how you got the Spirit? Or did you receive the Spirit because you looked upon the cross, you believed upon Jesus Christ and were saved? He goes, I'm going to answer that for you. You were saved by faith. It was by faith. And so he says, so are you so foolish now today, later on? That having been begun by the Spirit, you are now trying to be perfected by the flesh? Meaning, this thing started by faith in which you received the Spirit, and now all of a sudden you're reneging on that and going, okay, it's faith plus this. And so now you're trying to perfect this by your flesh, by works of the law. Like, that's insanity. And notice down in verse 5, he says, does he who supply the Spirit to you and works miracles among you, does he do so by works of the law or hearing by faith? You see miracles happen. Do those miracles happen because you, you did some formula of Mosaic law and that's how somebody got healed? Or did you just believe that God had the sovereign authority to heal that person and you trusted and they were healed? It's by faith. So why are you turning? And now what he does is he goes to the classic Old Testament illustration. Let me remind you to the Jew being tempted to mix works with grace. That's not how your father, forefather Abraham was saved. He says there in verse 6, just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteous. Are you turning away from that? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. If you're going to claim Abraham as your father in the faith, you're going to have to walk in the same footsteps he walked in, which was faith alone, not mixing other works with it. But here's what I want you to see. Jump down to verse 15 of chapter 3. Paul says, I want to give you a human illustration for just an, just an example. He said, even with a man-made covenant, we're not talking about the covenant right now that God made with Abraham, but just two human beings to get together, want to make a contract, a covenant, agree on something, and, uh, and settle the terms. When two individuals get together and have a man-made covenant, after that covenant is made, Paul says, no one can annul it and no one can add to it once it's been ratified. Let me put it in further English terms. You go to buy a car today and you go down and you spend all day haggling with the dealership, God help us, and you haggle all day to finally get them down to the price that you're willing to pay, you all agree to it, how do you ratify that contract? Well, you step aside into that office where you'll fill out a thousand pieces of paper. And in doing so, you have agreed to the terms. You agree to their terms of what it means for you to buy this car, and they're agreeing to your terms of what you're willing to pay for that car. Once that is signed, it is ratified. If about two, three days later, you get a call from the lender saying, hey, by the way, we realize we missed a few things we intended to put in there but never did. So we're going to add a few things in. We just need to up your payment a little bit. Is that going to hold up in court? No way. 
They can't add to it once it's been ratified. Neither can you go back and go, hey, I just feel like a couple days later, this thing isn't worth what I'm paying for it. I think I'm going to pay you lesser. Would that hold up in court? Absolutely not. It's been ratified. It's done. And what Paul is saying here, when God made a covenant to Abraham, even though the law came 400 years later, 500 years later, you, you can't say that that's adding in. It's already been ratified. Listen to what he says. Now the promises that were made to Abraham and to his offspring, it does not say to his offsprings, plural. Paul's doing some grammar right here. Need to make sure we understand the terms of the covenant when God made. God said, you're going to be saved, not through a bunch of different human players. There's just going to be one seed, not seeds, one seed, one offspring who's going to bring your righteousness. That was the term of the covenant. And to your offspring who is, and he names who that one seed is at the end of verse 16. Who is it? Jesus Christ. The term of the covenant that God made to Abraham was about Jesus. You're going to be saved through him, nobody else. That was the deal. And so he goes, so this is what I mean. The law, which then came 430 years afterward, does not annul the covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if an inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Do you see, have we beaten this sufficiently here, by the way? Go back to Romans chapter four. This is what Paul is trying to say. God made a promise to Abraham that your salvation would come and it'd be received by faith, period. So you can't come along 430 years later and say, well, now that the law is here, it's faith plus law. It never was. It is salvation and faith alone in God's promise. So the first thing that's going to happen if you're going to try to earn your salvation is faith has to get thrown out the window. It's, all on, it's either all on God or it's all on you. It can't be both. But there's something else that he says in verse 14 that gets tossed out. Not only is your faith nullified, but notice the promise is void, which is what Paul was getting at in Galatians chapter 3. You can take the whole promise of salvation, that you're, you're going to inherit the kingdom, you're going to be made righteous, you can throw it all out if it's not going to come through faith. There will be no righteousness provided. There will be no future kingdom inherited. Now, why would that be true? Without even looking at the next verse, why do you think there would be no future in the kingdom for those who are going to try to earn their salvation through the works of the law? It's because as we've already seen in Romans chapter one, all of us have fallen short. If you're going to try to earn it through the law, ain't nobody going to be in the kingdom. The only body that's going to be there is Jesus because he's the only one that fits the perfect standard of righteousness. We all fall short. And so therefore in verse 15, what is it the law brings you if you're going to try to go through the law to be saved? Does it bring you the keys to the kingdom? Does it, does it bring you righteousness and salvation? No, look in verse 15. He says, for the law brings what? Wrath. Wrath justice. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. If you're going to seek to obtain salvation by trying to fulfill the law of God, what is it the law will reward your efforts with? Wrath, justice, condemnation. That's the purpose of the law. The law was never given. The 10 commandments, the 613 laws was never given so that Abraham or so that Moses or any other Jew or you and I would look upon it and go, oh, nailed it. Like that's not what it was given for. The law was given to us to show us that we couldn't nail it. 
It was given to show us the perfect standard of who God is and how we have fallen short so that it might drive us to not to the means of salvation through the law, but the law would be given to drive us to the ultimate object of our salvation, which is Jesus Christ. That's what the law was given for, to show us the standard of God, how we've fallen short, and to drive us to Christ. So if you're going to try to earn salvation by adhering to the law, then faith gets nullified and your promise of salvation goes away. However, there's good news. There always is. Verse 16. Since salvation comes by faith, apart from the law, as we've seen in Abraham, what is it that is now guaranteed? We've seen what gets nullified if you work through the law, but if you choose to receive your salvation by faith, what is it that now gets guaranteed? Look at this in verse 16. That is why it, it being your salvation, depends on faith. In order that the promise that God made to Abraham may rest on grace and be what? Y'all can say it. You got masks on. I can still hear you though. Come on. Guaranteed. It is a certainty. By the way, this is the first piece in here where Paul is going to start dropping the hints that once you are saved, you cannot lose your salvation the assurance of your salvation. If it's going to come by works, if you can earn it, you can lose it. But if it comes by purely what God has done for you, it can never be lost. He's going to deal with this more in chapter five. We'll get there in a couple of weeks. But right now, it is guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to adherents of the law, that would be the Jew, but also to anyone who shares in the faith, the faith of Abraham. When salvation comes by faith apart from the law, both the grace of God and the promise of righteousness and salvation are certain, 100% guaranteed. So y'all, do you see what Romans chapter four is about? Has Paul beaten this drum sufficiently here? Salvation comes by faith apart from works. How do we know? Because Abraham was credited righteousness before he ever did a thing. Faith, salvation is given by faith apart from ceremonial tradition. How do we know? Because Abraham was circumcised 13 years after he was already saved. It was just a sign pointing to the reality. And salvation comes by faith apart from law. How do we know? Because it was more than 30 years afterwards that the law even came. And God's promise was never dependent upon that law. So the last remaining question is then what is the law still around for? Do the Ten Commandments still matter? Does the whole Torah of God still bear weight for anything anymore? I'm glad you asked. Rather than teaching this, I want you to see it. Our friends over at the Bible Project have done a better job than I ever could of illustrating this. I want you to see a quick video here that is going to show us what the law is for. So check this video out, and then I'll finish up. You're most likely familiar with the Ten Commandments in the Bible, stuff we generally take as good advice. Don't murder, don't steal, honor your parents, the list goes on. And those are just the first ten. There are actually a total of 613 commands, all given to ancient Israel, found in the first five books of the Bible, which in Hebrew are called the Torah. Now the word Torah is usually translated in English as the law, because it has all of these laws in it. And as you read through them, you wonder, Am I supposed to obey some of these, all of these? I mean, what's the purpose of 
the law. Well, that translation is kind of confusing because while the Torah has laws in it, the book itself is fundamentally a story about how God is creating new kinds of people who are fully able to love God and love others. And when Jesus taught about the Torah, he said that he was bringing that story to its fulfillment. So walk me through the story and how it's fulfilled. So the story begins with God creating humanity who rebels. And God chooses Abraham to bless all of the nations through his family, who end up in slavery down in Egypt, and so God rescues them. Then at Mount Sinai, God makes a covenant with Israel, like an agreement. And all of the laws that Moses gives to Israel are the terms of that agreement. They're like a constitution. And so some of the laws, they're about rituals and customs that set Israel apart from the nations. Other laws are about social justice or morality. And by following these, Israel would show the other nations what God is like. Okay, so the rest of the Torah is just the complete list of laws that Moses gives Israel? Mm, No, the rest of the Torah just continues the story. And the 613 commands are only a selection from that original constitution. And even these have been broken up and placed at strategic points within the story. Now pay attention because you'll see a really clear pattern. Moses gives the first laws to Israel. Don't worship other gods. Don't make idols. And then right after that, there's a story of Israel breaking those very laws. Yeah, they worship the golden calf. And so Moses gives some more laws. And then you get more stories of rebellion. Some more laws, rebellion again, some more laws, more rebellion. And you start to see the point. Right, no matter how many laws, they're just going to continue to rebel. So at the conclusion of the Torah's story, Moses gives this final speech to Israel as they prepare to go into their new home. And he tells them, you guys, I know that you're not going to follow all of God's laws. You've proven to me that you're incapable. And Moses says the problem is that their hearts are hard and that they're going to need new transformed hearts if they're ever going to truly follow God's law. And he was right. I mean, the story goes on to recount Israel's total failure. They go into the land, they break all the laws. Right. Now, the next section of books in the Jewish tradition are the 15 books of the prophets, and they reflect back on the story. For example, Ezekiel, he said that if Israel was ever going to obey the law, God's spirit would have to transform their hard hearts into soft hearts. And Jeremiah said that's when obedience to God's commands wouldn't feel like a duty, but they would be written deep in their hearts. And Isaiah, he promised a future leader, Israel's Messiah, who will lead all of the people in obedience to the law. Now, in Jewish tradition, all of these books together are called the prophets, even the historical books, because they're continuing the story told from the perspective of the prophets. Okay, so we have the law and the prophets, and they're telling one connected story about God's desire to bless the whole world through a people, Israel, who it turns out needs a new heart. Yes, and Jesus saw himself as continuing that story. So he agreed with the law and the prophets when he taught that it's out of the human heart that come the most ugly parts of human nature. It's like the default setting of our hearts is opposed to God's law. But Jesus also said that he came to solve that problem and in his words, to fulfill the law. So what does he mean there to fulfill the law? Well, first he said that the demand of all of the laws in the Torah could be fulfilled by what he called the great command, that we are to love God and to love others. So that seems pretty easy. I mean, we all want to love. Well, we think we want to love. But Jesus showed how love is far more demanding than we realize. So he quotes the law, do not murder. And he says, yes, not killing someone is a very loving thing to do. 
But then he also says that when you treat someone with disrespect or when you nurse resentment against them, you're also violating God's moral ideal because you're not treating that person with love. And so Jesus said true love ought to extend even to our own enemies. So even though this command seems very simple, Jesus showed how our hearts are not currently equipped to fulfill even this basic command of God to love others. And that's kind of a downer. But where Israel failed, Jesus brought this story to its fulfillment. As Israel's Messiah, he fully loved God and others. And he showed all of the nations what God is truly like. He did this through his acts of compassion and mercy and ultimately by loving his enemies even unto death. And after his resurrection, he told his followers that he would send God's Spirit to transform their hearts so that they could follow him and fulfill the purpose of the law, to love God and to love their neighbor. So this fulfills the story of the law and the prophets. Or in the words of the Apostle Paul, the one who loves fulfills the law. Man, isn't that good? Man, by the way, just, if I could just draw pictures all day and try to show us this text, there it is right there. But it's beautiful. I mean, that's the, that's the good news, man, is that the whole time in your Old Testament, it was never about the law. It was never about works. It was pointing to the one who would fulfill them. That's why Jesus said, by the way, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I didn't come to get rid of your Old Testament. He said, instead, I came to fulfill it. It was always about me. After Jesus' resurrection, on the road to Emmaus, as he's walking along with some disciples, he's telling them, opening up the Old Testament, he's going, listen, let me show you, all along the scriptures were about me. I've come to fulfill. So church, hear the good news. There is no works that can make you right before God. There is no adherence to the law that can merit a righteousness for you to stand in his presence, but as an act of love for you, he has given you the gift of Jesus Christ, his son. The whole law testifies to it that he is the one we are to put our trust in. Take your trust, transfer it to him. And then you'll understand the point of good works after that, as Paul would write to the Ephesians, that we are not saved in Christ. Um, We were not saved from our good works. We are actually saved now for good works. It is about the overflow of what Christ has already done in us. And so, oh, church, might we be a people that rest in faith in Jesus to know that he has lifted the shame, lifted the condemnation. It is Jesus has satisfied that for us so that we can be liberated to walk in the newness of life. Amen. Now, to that degree, let us celebrate that through communion right now. I want to invite the band to come back up. You know, and as we talked about last week, communion is an opportunity. It's a big neon sign every week that points us back to the understanding of grace and the understanding of where our salvation came from. We use those signs to encourage our hearts. Right, right over here, we have a giant cross, right? You know what we don't have lifted high and mighty here in our, in our makeshift sanctuary right now? We don't have a giant Torah, Can you imagine if you came in and we just had a giant Torah up here and a big picture of Moses? A constant reminder of the weight and the guilt of our failure to live up to the righteousness of God. No, we don't use that to anchor our hearts. We point to the cross because that is where God's grace culminated for us, right here, that saved us and pulled us out of the mire that we were in and liberated us to walk in the newness of light. And so we rehearse that gospel. We remember the salvation that has saved us. And Paul helps us do this when he wrote to the Corinthians 
And by the way, you should have gotten one of these when you came in. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, then this becomes that opportunity to celebrate that. If you are not a believer, we'd ask you to hold off from this. This sign won't indicate the true reality of your heart. We ask you instead to, to consider the personal work of Jesus Christ, that your faith might rest in him and not in yourself. Then this becomes a celebration. But Paul said to the church at Corinth, I received from the Lord what I deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. He said, I want you to take this in remembrance of me. The reminder that sin demanded a substitute and God was faithful to provide it. We remember Jesus Christ and his broken body for us. Paul said in the same way, Jesus took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. And what did we just learn about covenants? Once they have been ratified, there is no adding or taking away. Jesus said, the covenant you need is the new covenant, the one in which you don't perform for me, I will perform for you. And his blood was shed on that cross to forgive us of our sin. There is no adding to the blood of Christ and there is no taking away the blood of Jesus Christ. It and he alone is sufficient for our salvation. And so this new covenant, my blood, Jesus says, as often as you drink of it, do so in remembrance of me. We remember Christ's blood that has forgiven us. And Paul said, as often as we eat this bread, we drink of this cup, we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. And so let's pray. Father, thank you for the reminder again, three weeks in a row, hammered into us that this salvation that you have told us we need, that you so eagerly long to give, it is not earned by our works or by ceremonial traditions or by adherence to the law. It is a gift that is received by faith. And so God, kindle our hearts afresh in that. Help us to rest in that. And then help us to head out these doors here today as living sacrifices. In light of what has been given to us, may we as an overflow go give away those works to a world that so desperately needs to see Jesus. And we pray this, God, for your glory, our good. In Jesus' name, amen.